You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Has there ever been a time in your life when you felt like the world was just crashing in on you? Has there ever been a time in your life when you just looked and you thought, you know, as the old Hee Haw song used to be years ago, Archie Campbell, and they'd sing, if there weren't no bad, if there was no good news, there'd be no good, or some bad news, there wouldn't be no news at all, yeah. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, no matter what you, uh, what was going on, everything seemed to be falling apart in your life. We've just been here in the last few days watching Penn State, Joe Paterno, uh, a man that uh, is like a collegiate level college coach that has just uh, set all kinds of records, been a unique figure in college football, and yet he probably would agree sometimes it feels as if your world is just crashing in all around you. Things are just going wrong. You just can't figure out how to get your, your world kind of sorted out. It just, it just seems as if if it weren't for bad news, there'd just be no news at all. When we come to the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke, this is exactly what it seems as we're going through this. G. Campbell Morgan said this about this chapter. He said, at this point in the life of Christ, the whole atmosphere is one of crisis. Jason Yarborough commented last Sunday as he was... uh, sharing with us, and I thought very, very wise words. He said, you know, there is in me a tendency to become content. He said, there's a tendency in me to become content, to become satisfied, to settle down. And, and you know, when you've been like Jason and you've been to, to uh, mission field places and, ser- and been in different places serving and seeing the need around the world and even here at home, that frightens him. And it ought to frighten all of us. But sometimes what God does in our lives is that God turns our world upside down. I doubt that Penn State in Nebraska would have met in the middle of the ball field yesterday in front of the cameras of the entire world. They didn't meet to to coddle one another, to joke around. They didn't meet to exchange statistics. They didn't meet to look at their trophies. They didn't meet to talk about, well, you remember when we won the national championship? Or do you remember years ago when we won the national championship? They didn't talk about their stats. Their players didn't brag. They met out there in the middle of that field, Nebraska and Penn State, to pray. And they prayed for a long time. And the entire world was watching. They were watching, watching. And that's the key. Sometimes God upsets our lives. Sometimes He brings discontent. Sometimes He brings heartache and suffering into our lives. Because he's doing something at the time we don't even understand. And this is Luke chapter 22. 
In Luke chapter 22, I want you to take your Bibles and turn over there and look at verse 1. Because here we come to a time when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for a very, very critical moment in the life of humanity. He is coming to go to the cross. Everything now is moving toward Calvary. God has a plan, even in the midst of this, as G. Campbell Morgan said, this atmosphere of crisis. God has a plan and a purpose. There is something that He will accomplish. You know, I I thought as we were worshiping in a moment ago, I thought about in this particular chapter, I have a picture of the angels leaning over the balcony, over the banisters of heaven, and they're watching this moment here because this is a critical moment. And so I want you to look at Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. It said, Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priest... And the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Boy, isn't that always the way the world is working? You know, we've said it a lot of times. You can talk about religion. You can talk about God. You can even talk about prayer. You can talk about a lot of things with people. But when you bring up the name of Jesus, it is as, it's as if all of a sudden the whole dynamic of the conversation changes. Have you ever noticed that? Because we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and that is the only name that causes Satan and his army to flinch. And so here we have the Passover approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Because let me explain this. When when the Passover came in Jerusalem, people from all outlining areas, they just flooded into the city. I mean, the city was filled to capacity. Families were coming. They they were either bringing their Passover lamb or either they were going to secure a Passover lamb. And they would bring that Passover lamb and they would celebrate this as a family. They would come together. Often what they would do when they came into Jerusalem is they had to rent a place, a room, in order together as a family. Okay? Because they were from out of town. So people were flooding in. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were concerned. They wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they also had to deal with the crowd. And the Passover crowd at this time was just, was just so overwhelming the city that there was, no, there was great risk here, so they had to be very, very careful. Now let's read on. Verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of, officers of the temple guard. And he discussed, that word there is communed. It is the same word we get our word communion. They fellowshiped. He discussed, he fellowshiped with them how he might betray Jesus. You see, Judas is an interesting character. Judas is an individual, John tells us in John chapter 12 that Judas kept the purse. He was the keeper of the money. Judas was the treasurer of this small congregation that Jesus had around him. And, and, and Judas teaches us something that proximity to Christ does not make a dime's worth of difference. You can be close to the church, you can be close to a lot of things, but that is not what converts a man. 
That is not what brings salvation. It is when you and I open up our heart and life and we say, Christ, here I am. I'm a sinner. I've done a lot of things that I'm ashamed of. That God, I would never want other people to know. But I ask you, I invite you to come into my heart and to forgive me of my sin and be the Lord and the master of my life. Judas had never done that. He had never opened up his heart. He had heard the teachings. He had seen the miracles. He had lived, breathed, been in the presence of Christ. Imagine that. Imagine this man who had been in the company and the fellowship of Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He had ate with him. He had slept near him. He had sat with him for hours and hours and heard him commune and discuss and fellowship. He had heard all of that, but it had not made any difference in his life. There's an old statement that said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. There's a lot of truth to that. The reality is, is that being near the things of God doesn't make you believe. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, in the last days, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Did we not serve you? Did we not do these things? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, it's not enough to work for Jesus. It's not enough to live in the presence of the church or to read the Bible or to pray or do all of those things. The bottom line is there has to come that point in your life and in my life that we open up our hearts and life and we allow Christ to come in and be the Lord and the Master. Judas had never done that. And so Judas comes here and he meets with the chief priests and the temple guards and those individuals of power and influence because Judas covets power. He covets. He has a desire for money. He wants control. Jesus is not what he thought he would be. So he enters into an agreement because he seeks to betray Jesus. Before we move any farther, can I ask you something? Do we betray Jesus? Luke goes on to tell his friend Theophilus in which he's writing the book of Luke 2 inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the stage is set. Betrayal is in the air. Understand this, everything in Jesus' life appears to be crumbling and falling apart. From from within the circle, there's betrayal. And so here we see this scene. Now he takes the Passover meal. Read on, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So here, Jesus too is gathering His family. Now who's His family? His family is the disciples. And I want you to stay with me here. Between 2.30 and 5.30, people would take their Passover lamb and they would go to the court there in the temple. They would go to the court of the priest and there the sacrifice would be made. They would secure a room, they would bring their family together, and whoever the head of that family was would serve the Passover lamb, and they would eat those bitter herbs, and they would sing the songs of of, uh, Psalm 113 through 118. 
those psalms. I listened to them in the last couple of days preparing for this message. Think about that. Jesus is serving the Passover lamb. They're eating the bitter herbs. They're, they're celebrating that event. What is that event? That event was the deliverance that the Hebrew people had experienced back in the book of Exodus. You remember that? You remember when Moses went and confronted Pharaoh and he said to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. Let the people go. Let God's people return to the land of Canaan. Let them leave this life of slavery. Let them go. And you remember Pharaoh did everything he could. He put up a fight. God began to, to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then eventually the Bible says that God began to harden his heart. And plague after plague began to come. And finally that last plague was that every firstborn son, every firstborn would die. And the only way that they could be spared was that for the Jewish people, the Israelite people, is they were to go as a family and they were to kill, they were to go out and look for a lamb without blemish. They were to take that small lamb and cut its throat, spill that blood over into that basin. They were to take that hyssop and they were to take that blood and they were to go up around the door frame of that home. The Bible says then they were together in there and they were gathered in there and they began to eat that Passover lamb. They began to eat those bitter herbs to remind them of the slavery. They began to partake of the unleavened bread which would be the requirement which be to, would be to say to them, listen, you had to leave and you had to leave in a hurry. That's the way God calls us to leave the world. Leave the world, leave it in a hurry. And so here the death angel began to come and the death angel would come and over that door frame, around that door would be the blood of the lamb and the death angel would pass over that one and pass over that one. And then all of a sudden, periodically, it'd come to the home of maybe an Egyptian. It didn't matter slave. It didn't matter rich. It didn't matter political figure. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter Pharaoh. That death angel would come through the doors of that home and touch that firstborn and that firstborn would die. Die. Those people gathered their belongings and they left the city. They left the country of Egypt. They were heading to Canaan. And you know the story. We could go on into that. But this is what, this is what they're celebrating. People, Jews would come from all over the region. They would gather in Jerusalem. They'd rent that room. They'd go out. They'd find that Passover lamb. Jesus said, Peter, John, go secure the lamb. Go take the lamb. Go kill the lamb. Go sacrifice Peter, spill that blood. Bring that lamb back here and prepare so we can take the Passover meal together. So here they are, doing what every Jewish family did, but having no idea of the implications of what was taking place here. In verse 9, where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Look at verse 10. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher ask, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? You will show, he will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations for it. You know, when I got ready to preach this, I said, you can't preach this with notes. This is not a five-point sermon. This is the culmination of everything that humanity's been longing and looking for. 
Jesus tells Peter and John, he says, listen, when you go, he says, when you go, when you come into the city, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Now, let me tell you, men didn't carry jars of water. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. And you follow that man. And when you come to that home that he enters, you say to the owner of that home, the master has need of this room. He needs you to prepare it and make it ready for the Passover. You know what the disciples found? Exactly what Jesus said. Where God guides, He always provides. You may say, well, I don't know how God's going to do this. I don't know how, you know, you may understand God's will, God's direction. God may be calling you to do something. And you think in your, you think in your own limited mind, you say, you know, that's impossible. The Bible says with all things, God... Everything God's involved in is possible. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They found it just as he had said. Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with. You can imagine this scene. These men, these men were, when it says they reclined, and we've talked about this before, but when men of this day would gather, they would re- actually recline laying like this. In fact, the woman, you remember, that obeyed the feet of Jesus and anointed them. Do you remember we said that she was able to secure because his feet were away from the meal. He was sitting there like this eating. In fact, when the Bible says that, that at one point John's head was near the breast of Jesus, they were just in proximity by their heads close to each other. And so here Jesus is here, they're partaking of this meal, they're reclining, they're fellowshipping. He says, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you because this Passover was unlike any other. This Passover was the Passover, listen, this Passover was the Passover that ended all Passovers. This is it. We're not talking about the people of Israel being delivered out of the land of Egypt. We're talking about humanity being delivered out of sin. This is redemption. This is the exodus. And so here, Jesus said, I've desired this Passover before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The Bible says there'll be a great banquet in heaven. Boy, I look forward to that. Verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourself. There were four cups. The fourth cup probably came a lot later, but there were three cups. This could have been the third cup. It could have been the first cup. The cup would have been held by the host. There came that point that Jesus took the cup. He took his cup and he began to hand it around. And when he did that to all of the disciples, what he was doing is we are united. We are all together in on this. I remember years ago when I was preaching in England, my first communion service in this old church in England, we had at that time running about 40 plus people. I came in and, and, and some of the, these little British women had fixed up the communion table and it was covered like ours would be. And so I, I, I went up there. I didn't look up under the table. Uh, there were about, like I said, about 40 or 50 people. 
And so I came, came down to the time for the communion. And, uh, and, and as I pulled, I think I did because we didn't have many men. I think I pulled the cover back. And when I did, there was one glass. There was one goblet. I don't even know. I, I, I was wondering if it had real wine in it. But there was one goblet and then there was a loaf of bread. And in that, in that British environment, what they did was they each came, they took a piece of the bread, and they took that glass and they drank out of it. And I want you to know, it wasn't fancy like the Catholics. I didn't have no little white handkerchief to wipe off where they had drank. And, and, and so here they came. Well, luckily, Sheila and the kids, they were the first ones to get up and come to the table. I've never seen Sheila come so quickly to the communion table. Whoa, come on, kids. Now, what was so bad about it was there was a British lady, bless her heart, and she had a son, and that son was a little slow, and he had some problems and, and everything else. And, and on top of that, she had told me before the service, she said, you know, I'm, I brought him on anyway, but he's got a stomach virus. He's real sick. Oh, Lord. And I watched all 50 people drink out of that cup, and you know who had to do last? Me. But you know, there was something to that. And so here Jesus takes that cup and he takes it and he begins to hand it to each one of the disciples, each one of those apostles, and he says, Take this divided among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again until I am in the kingdom of God, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, This is my body, this do in remembrance of me. You know, often I've told you that when we partake of the communion meal, we do it with great ceremony and great care because of what it represents. And so here you have the disciples as they gather together. In verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement, the new testament in my blood which is poured out for you. And then in verse 21, it's so sad here. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. In the midst of all of the pain and the hurt and the suffering... Remember, Jesus will find himself in a, later in this chapter in Gethsemane. The Bible said that as he prayed in Gethsemane, the distress and the strain of that event was so intense that it said that his sweat turned to blood. You say, is that, is that possible? Yes, it is. Medically, it is possible. They often say that death row inmates sometimes will begin to sweat and they're under, under such intense stress and anxiety that the capillaries will burst at the top of their skin and their blood will begin to mix with the sweat. So you can imagine this scene as Christ is making His way to the cross as this great moment of ceremony. This is my body which is broken for you. And this cup is my blood that is being spilt for you. And at the same moment there's betrayal. We read on. Verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Let me say this. Isn't it, you know, we always think, man, I'd have been able to pick Judas out. He couldn't have fooled me. 
You know, even in the Jesus film, when it shows the 12 apostles, when it's Judas, he's a goofy, ugly-looking guy. You ever notice that? You ever seen the Jesus film? I mean, they, they, you know, they intentionally pick somebody out that just kind of stands out, this kind of a buffoon-type figure, you know, where everybody goes, well, there's Judas. You know, they wouldn't even have to tell us in the Jesus film we'd have picked him out. But in this case, it's not so simple. John the Beloved, Peter the spokesman of the disciples, all of the disciples are looking at one another, and you know what they're asking? They're saying, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Thomas said, Lord, is it I? Peter was saying, Lord, is it me? John was saying, Lord, is it me? Matthew the tax collector was saying, is it me? They were all going around the room, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? There was one voice not saying that. Let me tell you, folks, a lot of times we can fool everybody. But there's one person we can never fool. And that is Jesus Christ. You can understand this. Jesus Christ knows the truth about every single one of our lives. Now watch this, and we'll close in a moment, but I want you to see this. Look at verse 24. A dispute began to arise among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles. You know, you know what's so amazing here? You think in the midst of all of this pain and this hurt and this agonizing moment in the life of Christ, you would think to yourself that these men could not be so insensitive. But isn't that what happens? Now let's read on real quickly. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like them. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is the greatest, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer unto you this kingdom just as my Father conferred on it to me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You know what Jesus is saying? Here the disciples begin to, they begin to argue. Then, first of all, they're arguing over which one is it? Which one is it? Is it you? Is it me? Which one of us is going to betray? And then the next thing they're doing, they're arguing, Lord, who's the greatest? I love Mark Driscoll here. I love what he said uh, listening to a passage where he preached on this. And he made this statement. He said, can you imagine how ludicrous it is for 12 men to be sitting there and discussing in the presence of God in the flesh as to who's the greatest? You know, it not only makes us insensitive, it just makes us stupid. Mark Driscoll said this, can you imagine? Jesus said, well, okay, let's just have a little question here. A little question time. Uh, Who was born of a virgin? Raise your hand. Who was there when the universe was created and stretched out? Raise your hand. Who, uh, and this is real funny, when he said, who wants to go out and let's sprint on on the water? Raise your hand. You see, but that's the way we are. We want recognition. We want notice. We want to be somebody. I want people to see me. I want people to notice me. I want people to recognize me and to communicate with me. I want to be somebody. Jesus said, you can't follow me. 
I want you to be nobody. I want you to serve me and sacrifice and live your life in obedience for me. And I want you to not take, I want you to give and give and give. As Paul said, I want you to be a poured out offering that is poured out before your life. And that's what we spent an hour in Sunday school in this room as I shared with you. That's what it's all about. It's not about recognition. It's not about elevation of position. But it's about serving Christ. Jesus was on his way to Calvary. He was on his way to to the cross. You know what he said? If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. There's a cross for me. I want to ask you to stand with heads bowed and with eyes closed. Heads bowed and with eyes closed. No one looking around. Can I ask you something? Maybe the sermon's been a little bit different. It hasn't been a one, two, three appointment of prayer. It's been none of that today. This has been a sermon that has been about simply what Christ went through, what He did, what He did for you, what He did for me. He paid the supreme penalty, the sacrifice for your sin and my sin. But I want to ask you something. Have you ever given Him your heart and life? Or maybe you're here and you say, I've given Him my life, but I've not given Him my service. Maybe God has spoken to you today. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray even as we come to this time of invitation. Lord, we just pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would wrap your arms around each one of us. I want you to look this way. I got up here with no notes. I'm pouring sweat. Some of you have slept. Some of you slept through this sermon. Some of you have yawned. Some of you have looked like, where is his nice, polished, four, three or four point sermon? Where is his nice illustrations? And I'm up here sweating, thinking I'm doing a horrible job. You know what I thought about? You know what God just brought to me while I was praying, feeling kind of... God brought to me something Gary Boland said one time. Boy, only Gary could say it. Gary Bolin is just a straight shooting, I mean, lay it on the table. He was doing what I'm doing right now. And all of a sudden, he just stopped and said, you know, he said, I read a story the other day of a man, a crazy man that was fishing. And he had a little feist dog in his boat. And and that dog kept barking. The man got tired of it. So finally, he took that dog and he took one of those legs and he chopped it off with an axe. He said, I've read that story. People raised up in arms about it. And he said, maybe you're a little shocked right now. He said, you know what? And he just stopped right in the middle. He said, you know what's so sad? He he said, we show more emotion over a feist dog getting a leg cut off than we do our Savior, Jesus Christ, getting ready to go to the cross for our sin. 
And Gary Boland said, God forgive us. It's not about how well I preach today. It's not about any of that. If you've slept through the message, it's because it doesn't, you don't care. It doesn't matter to you. If you've yawned your way through or if you've just kind of sat here and not even opened your mouth, it doesn't really matter to you. But I can tell you one thing. It matters to me. We serve a glorious Savior. And that Savior with all the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness, that Savior stepped out of the throne of heaven. He wrapped Himself in the humanity of man in the robes of men as the African said, Mwadi Akam... As Omo Africans and Shona said, that God put on the flesh of man. He stepped in. He paid your penalty. He paid my penalty. I sat Friday with a couple of people that are sitting out here and I was talking to them about salvation and, and, and what Christ had done for them. But all they wanted was a bag of groceries. They just wanted a bag of groceries. And I was thinking to myself, you have no idea what I'm offering you right now. I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. It's far more than this bag of groceries. That's the way the world is. That's the way the world is. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you invited Him into your heart? And you said, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I'm separated from You, but I know that the blood that was spilled, the body that was broken, was broken and spilled for me. Zimbabwe, we gathered in a guest house. We were having a social. Women were in another room. The men were gathered around an old TV, an old cabinet TV, been donated to the mission. When all of a sudden they showed uh, the scene in Mogadishu, Somalia, and Black Hawk Down, where those American troops had been cornered and they'd been massacred, many of them killed. They showed those people in Somalia, they were taking them in Mogadishu, and they were taking that American soldier's body and they were tossing it back and forth and laughing and making a joke out of it. Before long, men of God, preachers and missionaries began to stand up. Our hearts were just so burdened. We began to weep. We had tears in our eyes. There was anger in our voices. And we began to try to figure out how we could go and get that man's body and bring it home. This is not the body of a soldier. This is the body of Christ. And it's been broken and it's been spilled for you because He loves you. So I want to invite you. If you've never received Christ to do it today, if, you've, if you're at a point in your life that you need to recommit and rededicate your life, do it today. If this is a time that you need to come to the altar and spend a moment in prayer, do it today. And then begin to live for the one who was broken and spilt for you. And live your life in service to Him. And I promise you this much. There'll come a day when the Bible says the heavens will open. The universe will just pull back in reverence. The stars and the moon, the sun, all of it will begin to fade away. And all of a sudden the Bible says He'll come in all of His glory. 
says that every knee will bow. Muhammad will fall to his knees. Hitler will fall to his knees. Gandhi will fall to his knees. The history, historical figures of the world. Washington. The nations of the world. The leaders of the world. Will all fall and they'll say these words. He is Lord. He's Lord. You and I have a chance to do that right now. I beg you to do it while you have time.